The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Welcome to the Miracle of Healing, where we come together every week to discuss and discover a roadmap to healing. I'm your host, Lisa Campion, and I hope you can join us since the world needs all the healing it can get. And we are healing the planet one person at a time right here on Mind, Body, Spirit FM. Hey everyone, I'm Lisa Campion and this is the Miracle of Healing. So we have such an important topic today. We're going to talk about trauma and how our trauma response is never wrong. What a radical idea, what a radical concept. And I know for many of us, living in the wake of trauma is so difficult. We really struggle. We can have a lot of variation in how we deal with trauma and how we experience it. But we've gotten this, certainly I did when I was trained as a therapist, this idea that trauma is something wrong or something bad. It's kind of dysfunction that we have to fix. But what if our trauma response is actually a manifestation of our own incredible strength? This is such a radical and healthy and beautiful concept that we have today. Um, Dr. Mary Catherine McDonald, she is one of the foremost authorities on trauma psychology today. We are going to discuss the possibility that our traumatic experiences reveal that we can be bent, we can be dented, we can be bruised, but we cannot be broken, that we are in fact unbroken. So welcome so much to the show, MC, and thank you so much for writing this book. Oh, thank you so much for that lovely introduction. And thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I mean, I have to tell you, this book was so massively impactful for me that I like was crying while I was reading it. And I was like, I was partly I was crying because the stories are so touching and also brought me into my, um, you know, my experience of trauma, my son, who was a veteran, his experience of trauma. And so part of it was touching me, but part of it was just like, I was like crying in relief that somebody actually wrote this book, that there's this like this other way we can, um, you know, we can look at trauma and, um, and process it. And, you know, when I was trained as a therapist, I work as a, as an energy healer, an intuitive energy healer, I train other healers how, and a lot of times the people that I'm training are Reiki people and they haven't had sort of clinical, you know, experience. So I teach them what I learned about how to be trauma informed and how to work with clients that have trauma. And it's such an, it's such an incredibly important piece. And, you know, I think one of the things that, that was coming to me as I was reading your book was like, we all have trauma. This is a book that everyone needs to read because, we, you know, we, we just can't find anyone that really hasn't had it. Yes. I think one of the, one of the critical, you know, messages that I wanted to get through is that we've been defining trauma incorrectly. And the science now shows us that number one, we all have this built-in set of responses that make up the trauma response that we have been misunderstanding and shaming. And number yeah. two, when, when we look at what the, you know, the real, what I believe is the real definition of trauma. Anytime you have an unbearable emotional experience that lacks a relational home, and we can dive into that, mm-hmm. you have a potential for trauma. And as you said, every human being has had at least one experience where they've got mm-hmm. unbearable emotions and can't really find anyone to relate to about that or not, not right away at least. And I think- yeah in the history of the study of trauma, there's been this assumption that trauma is something that lies outside the norm. In fact, that was one of the ways that it used to be defined in the DSM was something that was outside of the realm of normal. And unfortunately, as we now know, and I don't think can ignore anymore, it, it, it isn't outside the realm of normal, right? In the sense that 
everyone has had experience like this. So we really need to understand it so that we can meet each other in that experience and help with the overwhelm. Yeah. And I, I love how you talk about there's this sort of idea that we've had in the past about the big T, little T trauma is mm-hmm. something that we just need to throw out the window and yep. that somehow, you know, there, there are certain categories of trauma that are actual trauma and other categories of trauma that are not trauma. Like, and mm-hmm. I think it's easy for us, you know, to evaluate our own trauma, like, well, okay, my childhood was rough, but you should have seen what the kid down the road was right. getting, you know, <laughs> like, you know, yeah. like, so we kind of can bypass mm-hmm. our what we've experienced um, or dismiss it or have other people dismiss it. That happens quite a lot. Completely. And we create that and that hierarchy is false. And I think it's really fascinating to take that example and bring it into the physical world because Mm. if you and I both had, you know, appendicitis last week, yes, there might be important clinical distinctions between the type of appendicitis that we had and how, how bad it was before we had surgery. But those distinctions wouldn't matter to us. And I wouldn't say, well, my appendicitis was worse than yours. And so I deserve more sympathy and help than you do or vice versa. So why are we drawing those distinctions and creating those hierarchies in the psychological space? Absolutely. Makes no sense. No. You know? And I think we get into that sort of you know, c- comparing and um, and that doesn't do anybody any good. But let's talk about your definition. So go yes. back to that definition and let's break that down a little bit. Yes. So one of the things I was really fascinated by when I got into the study of trauma was that the whole field of psychology was still arguing about what counts as trauma, which kinds of events are traumatic and which kinds of events are not. And I think very slowly we're kind of moving to this model where we are realizing that it depends a lot on the individual who's experienced the event and not so much on the what the event was or the type of event. And so the definition that I like to use is not event-focused, it's individual-focused. And so again, that's anytime you have an unbearable emotional experience that lacks a relational home. The human psychology is structured such that we have to, emotions are biological experiences, and we have to bear them, see them through in order to integrate them and find a a home for them in our file room. And when our emotions are unbearable, that process gets interrupted. And then we need other people. We need a relational home or a space where someone can help us, can witness and help us bear those unbearable emotions so that we can together put them away. When we don't have that in the presence of that incredibly overwhelming emotional experience, there is a potential for a lasting trauma. And so a relational home, is that something inside of us or is that uh, outside of us? What is that? Good question. I think it's so, this is a space where, um, you know, editors and also my students get frustrated with me because relational home is like a little bit vague, you know, it just doesn't, it's like, what does that actually mean? But I think the reason that I like to keep it a little bit vague is because um, I think what a relational home is depends on the moment. It depends on the people involved. It depends on the trauma that you're working through. And I think that we provide each other a relational home all the time. We just don't necessarily recognize that. So the question that I pose to my students is usually, you know, they'll say, okay, what is a relational home? I don't understand what that means. We need more specificity here. And I say, okay, what is your protocol when one of your friends has a breakup or gets ghosted by someone that they that they care about or have been dating? And they're like, oh, okay. So the first thing is we go over to the dorm room. We make sure that they have all the snacks that they need. We watch cheesy movies and we cry. And then the second night we do this, right? And they have this <laughs> whole like protocol, like a breakup <laughs> protocol. Well, wow, that's cool. And that's a relational home. You know, um, a relational home can be any space where you feel held and attuned to in an overwhelming emotion. 
And mm-hmm. I think um, the reason I don't want to lend too much specificity to that is because it can be anything. Sometimes it's like right. when you go to Starbucks and the barista, you know, smiles really huge at you and asks you in a, in a really attuned way how your day is, that can feel healing. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's, you know, a three-year relationship with a therapist where you're going in every week and talking about your divorce or something that happened that is really shattering. And that's a relational home. And your friend who reminds you that there's light at the end of the tunnel is a relational home. You know, I think we need to get out of this space where we think that the only place that we can and do heal trauma is in a closed therapy room because right. we're, we're healing and can provide each other opportunities to heal all the time. So it sounds like there are some common denominators that we get to maybe express how we feel, that somebody, there's a listening first, you know, somebody's listening and holding space to how we feel, that there's some kind of, um, you know, warmth, tenderness, compassion, they're they're kind of the idea that, you know, it's not going to go on forever, we're going to get through this, there's some probably common denominators there, but that can happen in a lot of different environments. Yes, yes, totally. Yeah. How did you get into this work? Kind of by accident, actually. I was studying identity and I was, there was this debate going on at the time in, um, I'm an interdisciplinary scholar, so I work from um, the fields of philosophy, psychology, and neuroscience. And there was this debate in the philosophy of mind and in psychology at the moment, this was back in um, 2009, about the extent to which the self is composed of a story. So like, is the self narrative inherently? Is it not narrative? And there was a, it was really divided. And I thought, okay, everything we do happens in story form. Every, everything I tell you in order for you to understand it, everywhere I go happens in story form. We, we lend coherence to our lives. We tell stories all the time. That's how we cope. That's how we survive. That's how we celebrate all of these things. And so um, I wanted to make an argument on that side against this idea that the self is not narrative, nor should we try to make it narrative. So I actually leaned on the experience of trauma because I had had my own experiences of trauma recently. And I had also heard all of these other accounts of traumatic events where people would say, my story shattered. Hmm. You know, I had this plan, I had this thing, and then this, and then this trauma happened and the, and the story shattered. And so I wanted yeah. to use trauma as sort of like a, like a case study that proves that whether or not you know it, you are telling yourself a story. Of and that trauma is a disruption in the narrative. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And so if it is, and it is, and that's a common experience, then it has to be the case that there is a narrative, you know? So interesting. Um, right. And then I just yeah. fell on the rabbit hole because I found out that like, there's still this huge argument about, okay, what is trauma? And I was like, wait, what? It's, we've been studying this since the 1800s. How come we can't decide which things are traumatic and which things are not? Why can't we define this? And it's, we really have changed a lot. I mean, you yeah. know, we were, you know, we were talking about veterans and I was just remembering as I was reading your book that, you know, back in World War One and before that, if you were a deserter, if you suffered from shell shock, they would mm-hmm. take you out the back and shoot you. Yeah. It was like death by firing squad. Yeah. You know, like yep. uh, for being a coward or being a traitor, like it's like, wow, like, you know, such a lack of understanding on what shell shock was and, you know, what. PTSD for veterans is and so lacking in compassion and kindness. It's even just horrific to even think about it, but it is. So it's really changed a lot since then, thankfully. And maybe we still have a lot more work to do here. Yeah, we do. Yes, totally. I think, you know, speaking of of veterans, there's this um, book called Hysterical Disorders of Warfare by Lewis Yeland. And he talks about how he's trying to cure these soldiers of shell shock. 
And what he mm. is doing is torture. He's using shock therapy and literally torturing wow. these veterans oh to try God. to shake them out of their shell shock. And nowhere in the book, not once, is there like even the tiniest shred of like, maybe we're making it worse for them. Maybe the reason that they're getting sort of like shocked out of their symptoms is so they can leave the situation in which they're being tortured. There's no kind of self-reflection there at all. Holy moly. I know. And I think we like to think we've come a very far away from that, but I'm not sure that's actually true because I think- I don't know if it is. I mean, yeah. you know, we certainly in our, at least in our country, you don't have a very good track record of treating our veterans very well at all. My son's a veteran. So, you know, I've seen up close and personal, like what, what his experience has been like, you know, and I don't know, like, it just is such a profound and it's not just veterans. It's, you know, like, if, like we all, I think we all have childhood trauma, I hardly ever meet anyone that doesn't, but certainly we have things, you know, poverty, warfare, you know, it's just so much. Do you think it's getting worse or are we just becoming more aware of yeah, that's a great What's question. Happening? It's hard from this vantage point to say that it isn't getting worse because I think it certainly feels like it's getting worse. You know, like the news has become this almost comical. It's just like absurd. It's you so can't bad. Believe it's, it's real, right? Exactly. Yeah. Right. You're like, is this a joke? I can't tell. I've lost the thread here. Um, but I do also know when when you look through history, there are these moments when there is a lot of strife happening. There's a lot of economic, you know, you know, issues, there's political unrest. And those moments usually bring a spike in the study of trauma. So when things are bad, we study it, we legitimize it, we, we make progress in it. And then usually when things start to get better, we drop the topic and it becomes taboo and you can't talk about it anymore. And that is one of the reasons why we haven't made as much progress as we could have made in the study of trauma and in the treatment of trauma, because it's been, the study has been episodic instead of consistent, like in any other thing. And so my, one of my concerns as a trauma researcher is that we are in this huge moment where everyone is talking about it. And so we have this chance to make it better. We have a chance to get healthier and understand this and really refine and hone our treatment modalities clinically and also refine our story societally but I worry that we're about to drop off again. I worry that we're going to, the history is going to repeat itself. Um, so I think it's great that one of the things that makes it better is that we are talking about it more. It is more legitimized. People are more, it's more acceptable to admit publicly that you've had trauma, but I just, I don't know where that's going to go. We have to keep the thread going. You know what I mean? Yeah, we sure do. And we're going to take a super quick break. And when we come back, I really want to talk about, well, what do we do? Like, how, what do we, what are some steps we can take if we, you know, we know we have had trauma? Yes. So we are here talking with Dr. Mary Catherine McDonald about her amazing book, Unbroken, The Trauma Response is Never Wrong. So what do we do when we have, when we've had trauma? Like what, what are some steps that we can take, you know, once we've identified that, that that's something that we experienced? So I think the first step that's really critical is that we kind of put down the shame and the blame. And because I think the first place that people typically go is, okay, I'm having this trauma response. So I had a bad thing happen. Now I'm having all these symptoms. Therefore I'm broken. Mm, right. 
And when you start there, healing is impossible because you have labeled yourself broken. You are calling what are very normal and adaptive biological processes. You know, you're you're deeming them to be pathologies. You're saying that this is proof that I'm broken. And it's actually the opposite. When you try to heal with that amount of shame, it's like trying to walk up a mountain with like a car strapped to your ankle. You can try and and really push, but you're not going to get very far. So I think the first step is to say, is to recognize that the symptoms are proof that something happened to you and that something needs to be integrated. That's it. It doesn't mean you're broken. doesn't mean your trauma needs to be compared to anybody else's. It doesn't mean anything. It just means that this you've got a thing that is calling out to be integrated. Um, sometimes I like to think about the trauma symptoms as like an indicator light in your car, right? Like you don't, when the indicator light in your car comes on, you don't just like get out of the car and leave it on the highway. You recognize without shame, something needs to be looked at. That's it. So that's kind of, you know, the foundation, the ground zero, the beginning. And then the second thing is to turn to integration. So our memory files are organized in the brain in a very, very organized, meticulous way where we have a narrative for every event that happens. We have emotional content, and then we have a set of meaning tags that helps the brain recover and find that, that memory when it's needed. Trauma is essentially an issue of memory. So when you have trauma, whether that's chronic or an acute specific traumatic thing, you have one or more memory files that is not integrated. So there's going to be pieces missing. Maybe there's pieces of the narrative missing. Maybe there's emotional content missing. Maybe there's too much emotional content that someone needs to help you bear. Or the set of meaning tags isn't helping your brain find the the folder at the right time. And so being able to kind of, I like to think about it as like putting everything out on the table, again, without judgment or shame and being like, okay, what's here? What are the fragments that we're working with and what do we have to do with them? And once you kind of take a survey of what's going on, you can figure out, okay, I've got some pieces of the narrative missing. I need to build those back up. I need to tell this story more so that I can have this coherence here. Or, I'm wow, I'm having a really outsized emotional response here. Who can help me bear those emotions? What can we do with them? Um, how can I heal in my body? That kind of stuff um, in order to make those kind of go back to the, the appropriate size, using the word appropriate, not in a judgment thing, but just so that the emotions don't take you over. And then what kind of meaning are you assigning to this event in your larger story? Because if you're telling yourself, let's say you had a divorce, for example, and you're telling yourself, you know, this story is a story that proves that I'm a failure. Then what that means is that that file folder is going to stick out and it's going to look like the most important and or only thing that's ever happened to you. And that's not true. I definitely put that one in the it's all research folder. It's a <laughs> that's where it goes in my in my being. This is research. These are data points. Right. <laughs> Important research project that is now closed. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. But so that's a very different, you know, once you put that kind of meaning tag on it, then it makes it so that that folder can kind of fit in with a larger story rather than look like your entire story. Um, and so those are just some some things that need to be done. It kind of depends on the person and the, and the situation. But integration is always the goal. And there's so many ways to do that, right? Yeah. Like we can do that with like talk therapy. Mm -hmm. We can do that. I find body work to be really, Completely. Um, you know, like, cause we eventually, I think when we're done, when we've tapped out talk therapy, then we sort of have to get into the body or if we're dealing with like preverbal trauma, we have to get into the Hopefully. nervous system and the brainstem that we can't always access through talking about it. It's mm -hmm. not in our frontal cortex, right? So, yep. you know, finding ways to calm the nervous system down seems to be super important. How do we do that? 
Yeah. So I think again here, you know, when we don't have control over the default responses that happen, you know, like the trauma response is something that is wired in and it is adaptive and born of strength. So that's critical right. to understand. What we do huge have paradigm shift. Over. Yes. Huge paradigm shift where where we we're dropping that like there's something weak, there's something wrong, you know, that you have to hide with a lot of shame. You know, I love that reframe. That's just so powerful. And that you're isolated, right? Like if you have these symptoms, that means there's something wrong with you uniquely. No, we all have a trauma response built in on purpose. It's it's part of the default wiring. Um, And so I think, you know, recognizing that is is really critical. Um, And then we need to understand that like the body is along for the ride, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think sometimes we get too into the story. We feel more comfortable disconnecting and talking about the narrative um, but we need to understand that the body is involved and that also, even though we don't have those, we don't have control over the default responses, we have a lot more control over our nervous system than we think. So right. if we can start looking at our body as a barometer that's giving you data all the time, every moment and tune into that channel rather than trying to manage it or turn it off, then mm-hmm. we can understand how our nervous systems work, what they are telling us, and then how to intervene. So one of my favorite things about the book is that at the end of every chapter, I was able to put tools. And Mm. so there's some tools for regulating your nervous system that um, I think everyone should have. I don't know why this isn't in the curriculum. I know. Everyone should have it. Right? Of like, you know, really simple grounding exercises. Like if you're feeling really overwhelmed, lying down on the floor and feeling into the solidity around you and, and letting your body have that experience of feeling safe and grounded and stable even just for 30 seconds can help you reset your nervous system or doing a couple of breathing exercises where you are pushing breath into your diaphragm and then against the vagus nerve, which happens to turn on the rest and digest part of your nervous system. These little tiny tools, I think sometimes feel like they're not going to be enough to handle trauma, but they are, every time we can engage in them, we help our body feel safe in the world, which is a critical part of trauma healing. Yeah. I love the four, two, eight breathing pattern that always yeah. works for me, yeah. you know, like mm-hmm. inhaling four, holding for two, exhaling yeah. for eight. And that's a vagus nerve reset, I think. Yes. Yep. Totally. Especially if you make sure that the breath is going into the kind of the center of your belly, because then again, it's pushing mm-hmm. against the the diaphragm. So the vagus nerve um, is named vagus just because that's the Latin word for wandering. It's the largest nerve <laughs> in your body, it wanders all over your body and it touches all of your internal organs. And it's responsible for your, whether you're activated in sympathetic nervous system response or kind of deactivated in, in rest and digest parasympathetic nervous response. So if you can right. manually push against it with your breath, using that kind of rhythmic breathing, you're touching a space where the vagus nerve has the most nerve endings. So it gets a really quick message to the rest of your body that it's okay to calm down. Um, The other thing you can do for that, believe it or not, is gargling because, um, yeah, I don't know if you've heard this, but one of the other spaces. I didn't know that one. That's a good one. Yeah, right. They've done, and the studies on it are kind of incredible. But your, the other space that your vagus nerve has the most nerve endings is at the back of your throat. And so Mm. if you can sing, um, chant, like if you chant vu, you'll feel Mm. the vibrations at the back of your throat. Or if you gargle, that's another way. I know. Pretty wild. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of this, and you know, energy healers and mm-hmm. yoga yoga people and stuff have known have known a lot about how to reset the vagus nerve and totally, you know. And I, to me, there's always a distinction between vagus nerve and adrenal mm-hmm. like push. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I, I, I'm, I think we tend to be one or the other. You know, if you're if you're like vagus nerve fires, it's kind of like the 
it's sort of like fainting, fainting and vomiting is kind of like the, like, you know, yeah. like we do that, but I tend yeah. to, that's the flight part of fight or flight. Yep. Right? And the mm-hmm. fight part is in the adrenals. That's how mm-hmm. I experience it. I'm more of a, a adrenal person. So I tend to get adrenal burnout because mm-hmm. I'm just grinding down in the stress adrenal hormones. glands all the yeah. time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because everything that's happening, like there's these stress hormones that are getting released. Um, and I think, again, this is a really exciting space for research that we're going to just keep iterating on and getting more and more data that when your body thinks there is a threat, doesn't even matter if there is a threat right. to your rational mind. If you're, if there's a threat to your system, it's going to start sending signals to your body that you're in danger. So that yeah. triggers the release of stress hormones, which totally alters your body function on every level. And so, totally crazy. And yeah. it's like, can just be on a thought that you had. A hundred percent. It's like, yeah. not like, not, that's what anxiety really is. It's like that yep. fear response, but from a yep. thought. Yep. yep. Or even yes. just something that's in your sort of periphery that you've, that is a trigger that you don't even yeah. consciously recognize. I think one of the totally. most, I think we're getting the trigger conversation wrong in a lot of ways. But one of the ways we're getting it the most wrong is when we say that we, or when we assume we have conscious awareness of all of our triggers, because we don't. They're sometimes very subterranean. And so what will happen is something enters your periphery that reminds you of a traumatic event deep, deep in the recesses of your brain. And you have this response as if you're in danger that you can't understand because you're just sitting at work. And it's like, what happened? You know? Yeah. I had to work through one like that that had to do mm. with the time of day and the way the oh, light yeah. looks yes. in the, you know what I mean? So like oh, yep, yep, dusk, yep. you know, the sort mm. of that dusky thing. And, and uh, you know, it was so far back in my memory. It was like really pre-verbal time. And I think when we're, when we're dealing with that, that super early childhood stuff, we might not have conscious awareness oh, of our triggers. Completely. And that, and I'm so glad you brought that up because it doesn't mean that we can't heal. I think there's this huge mm-hmm. misconception now that if you have a traumatic symptom, you have to go diving and you have to find that memory in all of its specificity and relive it yeah. over and over in order I to heal. I don't think that's helpful. I mean, is, no. does that just re-traumatize us? It does. And it's also not necessary. And we know that because there's tons of case studies of people who have trauma that that is known, but they didn't experience because they were either they had a head injury or they were um, not conscious at the time or they were too young. It was pre-verbal. Um, and the memory, you know, folder part of the brain isn't um, isn't connected yet, essentially. And we know that we can treat from the symptom, you know, so all you need to know is to have awareness of the symptom and then you can treat that. You don't need to go into the back. That's super good. That's yeah. super good news because I've just like felt that instinctively that we don't need mm-hmm. to. And that's right. why I like the breathing techniques and the body work techniques and, yep. you know, sometimes even more than the talk therapy. I think there's definitely mm-hmm. a certain amount of talk therapy we need to kind of loop in our, our yeah. rational mind and kind of, you know, get our our awake adult self on board with what's going on. And then yeah. maybe we switch to these other things so we can kind of clear the trauma directly out of our body yeah. without having to cough it up through our memory if we don't have oh, to, right? Completely. Yeah. So well said. I, you know, it's, we need to think safely and we need to feel safely, right? So we need to like cognitively feel safe in the world, think safe, and then feel safe in our bodies. And if we think safe, but we don't feel safe, it doesn't matter. One of the things I did was learn martial arts. So, oh yes, you oh know, to overcome mm-hmm. my trauma I was pretty young. Um yeah. and I was like 16 and I'm like I want to feel safe in the world. I don't want to be I was 16 when I started martial arts because I didn't want to feel unsafe in the world. It was a really clear decision t- to me like I wanted I have an adventurous spirit. I wanted to travel and I didn't want to be 
afraid. So I learned martial arts so I could have a couple black belts. Oh, um, it was that. sort of, it was kind of like a counterphobic response, you know, yes. like it pisses me off to be afraid. So yep, I'm yep, going to, yep. I want, you know, and it worked for me. Like yeah. I'm not afraid, oh, that's you know, so um, because I, I know I feel confident in defending myself kind of wherever I need to. And that yeah. that's how I handled it. I love that. I love that. And I think this is another space. I'm so glad you brought that up too, because this is another space I think where we we tend to get a little too reductive and we say, okay, the way to heal trauma is to do um, EMDR, which is a great modality that helps a lot of people, but there is no mm. one single way to heal. And I think um, there's research coming out about dance, about rhythmic movement, about yeah. um, things like Tai Chi, where you're connecting yoga, where you're connecting breath with movement. All of these yeah. things help heal on a somatic body level. Um, yeah. And so, and then also you have this cognitive understanding that you are, um, you're more empowered in the world. You're more right. steady and stable. And so yeah. I think um, it's, ex that I think that's exciting because- someone could use instead of one single modality for four years, someone could try five different things coming from a more holistic perspective. What are we doing in the mind? What are we doing in the body? How are we integrating mm. all of these things? And then, um, and heal potentially not just faster, but more completely. Mm -hmm. Such a great point. I love that so much. So, Thank you so much for writing this book. Again, oh I just gosh, want to course. send you, I know writing a book's a huge pain in the ass. Like, oh, I kind of love it. No. But do you? I, me <laughs> yeah, too. I, I'm like, I have like um, a couple of books out now. I'm like yeah. my fourth is coming out in November. Oh, but I, I just want to thank you. Yeah. I just want to thank you really from the bottom of my heart for taking the time to do all the research that you've done and really switch this paradigm around and publish a book that's so readable, even though it's a tough topic. It's very accessible. Um, your book. So it's just a, it's just an absolute gift. And I, I, you know, was telling you before we started rolling here that I sent it to all my people. I sent it mm -hmm. on every Facebook group that I have and, you know, like <laughs> all my students, all my, like, I want everybody to read this book to send a copy to my son oh, I'm so glad. because Thank it's, you. I just think it's beautifully, um, beautifully done and such liberating, you know, the, the potential for liberation is powerful because we all have to deal with this. And if we are not dealing with it directly, chances are good. We know somebody who we're somebody we love is, you know, so hundred percent. Um, thank you from no, the bottom of, of my heart, really. For One of the, this book. Oh, thank you so much for saying that. That's so sweet. One of the things I really wanted to get across is that there's a lot of hope here. Mm. You know, sometimes I think we turn yeah. away from trauma. Or we're like, oh, I don't want to look at that because we're afraid that all that is there is darkness. But right. There's a lot of hope in this in this yes. field. So hope, liberation. Yeah, right? liberation. You know, yeah, I love that. Mm -hmm. And and healing. Yes, hundred percent. So, how do people get in touch with you, and how do they find your book? So, the book um, is called Unbroken. The trauma response is never wrong. It is available wherever you get books, bookstores, your favorite indie, Amazon, anything like that. Um, and you can find me on TikTok and Instagram with the same handle. It's just mc.phd, and my website is alchemycoaching.life. Thank you so much for being with us. Today. Thank you so much for having me. This was wonderful. Thank you. And thanks all of you guys for tuning in. I know you're just going to reach right over and hit that subscribe button so you never miss a single word of what happens on the show. If you want to find me, you can find me on my website, lisacampion.com. Stop by and visit. I work with psychics, healers, and empaths to really train them up and help you get the skills you need because I think the world needs all the healers it can get. That's my mission in life is to create an army of healers to go out there and save the world. 
So thank you for being part of our journey today here on The Miracle of Healing, where we are healing the planet one person at a time right here on Mind, Body, Spirit FM. Intuition is our spiritual GPS and the single best tool that we have for navigating our lives. I'm Victoria Shaw, and on my Intuitive Connection podcast, I will share with you the ways to connect with your intuition and awaken the gifts of your soul. In each episode, I'll draw on my own intuitive gifts and my training as an Ivy League trained counselor and psychologist to help support you in reaching your highest potential. Start listening now on Mind Body Spirit FM Podcast Network or wherever you find your podcasts.